The sermon text today is Genesis chapter 34. Uh, Genesis chapter 34. And once again, we will not have a New Testament reading as is our custom, only because uh, this passage is also a long one. Uh, We're not covering quite as much ground as we covered the last two weeks, but still, it's an entire chapter out of the book of Genesis. This is a difficult passage, brothers and sisters, uh, addressing difficult things. Um, But I trust that the Lord has application for us to make from this text. Genesis chapter 34, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone." Their words pleased Hammer and Hammer's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. And he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hammer and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters and wives, and let us give them our daughters." Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day when they were sore... Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. 
They killed Hammer and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us as we labor to apply this text to our lives today. By now you are familiar with this pattern, for it has been repeated many times in the history of the patriarchs of Israel as told in the book of Genesis. As, as Genesis presents us with the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we will in one moment be greatly encouraged by some positive thing, an act of courage and faith, or the promises of God reiterated to the patriarchs once again. But in the next moment, we will find ourselves greatly discouraged by some detestable thing, a lack of faith on behalf of the patriarchs. Perhaps they are driven by fear, leading them to do things like deception and to polygamous marriages in an attempt to bring about the plans and purposes of God through human effort, etc. Uh, we have seen this pattern repeat itself over and over again. We are encouraged in one, one moment and then discouraged in the next. And I think it is clear that Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was very concerned to say to physical and spiritual Israel, don't get the wrong idea about your election. The Lord has set you apart to bless you, not because of your inherent goodness, not because of your superior faithfulness, but by His grace alone and for His glory alone. Uh, that is the only way for us, I think, to explain the way that Moses went about writing the history of Israel. It is so filled with the blemishes, the shortcomings, the sins and failures of the patriarchs. It must have been for that purpose. Yes, you are God's chosen people, but don't get the wrong idea. This is by the grace alone, of God alone, and for His glory alone. And you should notice that the same pattern is present here in the story of Jacob and his sons. We were greatly encouraged by the previous passage, weren't we? Some of you mentioned that to me, by the way, after the sermon uh, last Sunday. That was a greatly encouraging sermon. And I agree, it was an encouraging sermon because it was an encouraging text that was being preached. Jacob was faithful to free Laban and to return to the land of Canaan in obedience to the command of God. He was filled with faith and he was responsible. He prayed, he even wrestled with the Lord and he prevailed, remember. The Lord blessed Jacob and he gave him the name Israel. The promises of God were then reiterated to him. And finally, he was reconciled to his brother Esau. And at the end of the story, we were greatly encouraged to learn that Jacob purchased land in Canaan, and there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, meaning God, the true God of Israel. And so the story concluded with Jacob worshiping God in Canaan, in the land that had been promised to him many years ago. We were encouraged by that. But now we come to a very disturbing scene. The defiling of Dinah by Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, and 
the unjust slaughter of the Hivites by Simeon and Levi, the sons of Jacob. I've decided to organize this sermon by considering each of the main characters in this story. Dinah, Shechem, Hamor, Jacob, and then finally Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi. We're going to consider the role that each of these played in this narrative, and we're going to make application to our lives today based upon what it is that they did. But before we begin to do this, I must say, as we take, as we take this approach today, we must be very careful to not lose sight of the main point of this text. There is a point that is being made here by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we cannot miss it. Yet again, Genesis is concerned to magnify the grace of God shown to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. God's grace and God's faithfulness is the central theme of this passage. Moses is saying to us, look at how gracious and faithful God was to save and to set apart this people. He was faithful to preserve His people and to keep His promises to them despite their weaknesses, failures, and sins. That being said, let us begin by considering this young lady, Dinah, who was the daughter of Jacob, born to Leah. In verse 1 we read, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. I don't think any clarification is needed concerning what happened to this young lady. I think those who are mature enough to process this subject matter understand the terrible thing that was done to Dinah. Remember that we were first introduced to Dinah back in Genesis 30, verse 21, where we learned that Leah, after bearing Jacob six sons, also bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. So up into this point of the narrative, Jacob had eleven sons, and he had one daughter. We will hear of the story of the birth of Jacob's twelfth son, Benjamin, in Genesis 35, 16 and following. The fact that Dinah was born to Leah is probably significant to the story uh, this will become clear later on, but it seems that Jacob had a bad habit, habit of showing favoritism to the children who were born to Rebekah. He loved Joseph, and he would love Benjamin more than the rest, it seemed. The children born to Leah and the two servants may have been neglected a little bit by Jacob. And brothers and sisters, parents should be careful to not show favoritism to their children, each child is a unique gift from the Lord. Each one will have strengths and weaknesses. Each one is to be loved, instructed, and disciplined consistently, equally, and in a way appropriate to their temperament. I think it may be that Jacob fell short in this regard. This theme is beginning to develop, I think, in the narrative of Genesis. Dinah was probably 14 or 15 years old when this terrible thing was done to her. We are told that she went out to see the women of the land. It's a rather obscure statement. Uh, it's hard to know exactly what was entailed here. It probably only means that she went out to socialize. I guess if you were the only daughter and you had 11 brothers, you would probably want to go out and visit with the women of the land as well. It's hard to know exactly what she was doing. She was socializing. I think if Moses meant to communicate that Dinah was up to no good, that she was a rowdy and rebellious girl or something like that. He could have done so. Instead, we are given the impression that her actions were innocent. 
But with that said, I think it is also appropriate to make this application for our young people in particular, and especially the young women in our congregation. It is important for you to be aware of your surroundings. It is important for you to be alert and aware of the dangers that exist within the world. It's important that you be not naive. I hope you know what it means to be naive, by the way. It means to have a lack of experience, wisdom, and judgment. A person who is naive puts themselves in dangerous situations and doesn't even know it. A person who is naive trusts those who should not be trusted. Young men and women must develop wisdom. They also must develop discernment. And how does a person gain these things? They gain wisdom and discernment by, first of all, fearing God, by knowing His Word, and by learning from others who have proven themselves to be wise. We must be wise in this world, brothers and sisters. You've heard me make this application many times in this study. I have often said that the Christian should not live in fear. I have pressed that upon you time and time again. We are to live courageously in the world as we trust in the Lord. But I want to clarify something here. By that I most certainly do not mean that we are to live foolishly or recklessly in the world. We are to live courageously. We are to not be hindered by fear, but we are also to be wise. We are to be alert to the evil threats that are all around us. This world is filled with wickedness, and we should be aware of that. Dinah went out to see the women of the land, and somehow she ended up in this very dangerous situation. We might ask the question, was she at all to blame? Was she careless? Was she naive? The text does not say. I think we should judge her to be innocent, therefore. But the story does provide us with an opportunity to say to our young people, and particularly to our young women, be wise in this world. Understand that there are wicked people in this world who will take advantage of you. And so you are to be alert You're to not put yourself in situations that can spiral out of control. Secondly, let us consider this character Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite. This young man was a scoundrel, wasn't he? That is clear from the text. He was a selfish man, driven by his passions and lacking in self-control. That is how he is characterized here. It is clear from his actions that he was a selfish man, driven by his passions and lacking in self-control. In verse 2 we read, And when Shechem the son of Hamar the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, Dinah, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. His soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Whatever we might say about the wisdom or lack thereof in Dinah, the text is clear that Shechem took her by force to lay with her. Nothing can possibly excuse his behavior. It is a sin for a man to lay with a woman who is not his wife. It is especially sinful for a man to lay with a woman without her consent. To lay with someone who is not your spouse is called fornication. But to lay with someone without their consent, that is to force yourself upon them, is called rape. The scriptures condemn both things, but rape is an especially heinous sin, for it involves a victim. The law of Moses says in Deuteronomy 22, 25, 
But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall, be, shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor, because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Shechem was clearly driven by his passions. And by that I mean that he was controlled by his desires. Instead of controlling his desires, he allowed his desires to control him. He was attracted to Dinah. He wanted to have her as wife. And there was nothing wrong with that, was there? But he allowed the natural attraction that he felt for her to burn out of control. He lusted after her. He obsessed over her. He allowed his cravings for her to run about unchecked and unchallenged within his heart until he did the unthinkable thing to take her by force. Brothers and sisters, how important it is for us to develop self-control. To develop self-control is to develop the ability to rule over our thoughts, our appetites, and our actions. I'm afraid that when many think of self-control, they think only of learning to control our actions. That is, to control the things that we say or do. And of course, uh, that is involved in developing uh, self-control. We are to have control over our words and our deeds, but it is also important that we learn to control our inner life. That is to say, we are to control our thoughts even, and our passions. The things that go on inside of us are not beyond our control. When I say that we must learn to control our thoughts and passions, I mean that we must bring them into conformity to the law of God to make them subject to Christ. Sometimes when I read the law of God to you and I urge you to confess your sins to Him on the Lord's Day, I will ask you a question, brothers and sisters, have we, have we kept this law perfectly? And you will say to me, no, but we have violated this law in thought, word and deed. It is not only the things that we say and do in violation of the law of God that are sinful, but even, even the thoughts that we allow to reside within us, even those passions that are sinful that we allow to go unchecked within us, they can be sinful as well. They're, the seed of sin is present and it must be rooted out. Christians are to think pure thoughts. They are to dwell upon what is pure and true. They must, by the power of the Holy Spirit, take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. Paul exhorts the Christian concerning their thought life with these words, saying, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, Philippians 4.8. And so I wonder, have you learned to control your thoughts? Have you learned to test them against Scripture to see if they are true? Have you learned to put away that which is false and filthy from your thoughts and to think about things that are, in fact, pleasing to the Lord? I want you to ponder what I am saying here later this Lord's Day. Um, I really do believe we have a problem in our culture especially and even within the church. We think only of our actions as being either sinful or holy. And it is no wonder therefore that we struggle to bring our actions under control. To do that which is pleasing to the Lord because we have failed to first deal with 
the thought life and the passions that reside within us. We have to attack our sinful behavior first there to say, Lord, the real problem is, is I am allowing myself to think things that are filthy. I am allowing my passions to go unchecked. I am thinking thoughts that are untrue according to the Scriptures. Christians are to rule even over their passions. To have passion is to be drawn to something or to be repulsed by it. All humans have passions. We look at the world around us, we consider things to be either good or evil, lovely or repulsive, and then our passions either draw us to that thing or drive us from it. To be human is to have passions. The trouble is that our passions have also been distorted by sin. Instead of being drawn to that which is truly good, lovely, and pleasing to God, sometimes, maybe even often, we are drawn to that which is evil. And conversely, instead of being repulsed by that which is evil, we are sometimes drawn to that instead. And this is why Paul says to the Christian, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, which is a behavior. But listen carefully. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Those things, he lists, are sins of the heart. And those sins, those sins of the heart, which cannot be seen but reside within us, are to be put to death. Not only is evil behavior to be put to death, but evil passions and desires also. This man Shechem was driven, he was controlled by his passions, which were inclined to evil. May it not be said of us, instead we are to be self-controlled, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Thirdly, what shall we say of Shechem's father, Hamor? I do get the impression that Hamor spoiled his son by failing to discipline him. His son is portrayed as self-absorbed, self-serving, reckless, and perhaps he had something to do with this. Notice that Hamor did not condemn the actions of his son, quite the opposite he advocated for his son. Verse 8 says that Hamor spoke with Jacob and his son, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter, please give her to him to be his wife, and he there tempts Jacob and his sons with the promise of making marriages with them and them giving their daughters to Jacob and his sons and they would have peace in the land. They would prosper. Notice that this is the thing that the Lord had promised to Jacob that the Lord would bless Jacob and give him peace and prosperity within the land. That land would be his someday. But here Hamor offers it to him in another way. In verse 19, we learn that Shechem was the most honored of all his father's house. I get the sense that this was a spoiled young man, probably one who was never disciplined appropriately by his father, who always got what he wanted. Give me this woman to be my wife, father, he demands. And there his father goes to advocate for his son who had done this horrible thing. And brothers and sisters, we must take care to discipline our children in love and to teach them to, commit, to, to keep the commandments of the Lord. Proverbs 13.24 famously says, Whoever spares the rod 
hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Disciplining your children is hard work, isn't it? Parents know this. It requires diligence, as the proverb says. But the lazy parent fails to discipline in one of two ways. They are either negligent, that is, they refuse to address the sins and shortcomings of their children altogether. That seems to be what Hamor did here. Or they are harsh, confronting the sins and shortcomings of their children, but carelessly in anger and not in love. I think both failings must be avoided by parents. I think both approaches indicate a degree of laziness within the parent. I myself have fallen into these things, brothers and sisters, so I do not only speak to you. We need to be diligent to discipline our children and to teach them the way of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4 speaks to fathers in particular, saying, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but instead bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so parents, and especially fathers, have this responsibility to discipline their children, to bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. And this they are to do in such a way that their children are not provoked to anger. What will provoke a child to anger? Well, hypocrisy in the parent will provoke the child to anger. Harshness in the parent will provoke the child to anger. Unreasonable expectations will provoke the child to anger. And so parents, and especially fathers, are called to discipline and instruct their children as they themselves pursue obedience to Christ, as they model repentance before their children. When they discipline and instruct, they are to do so graciously, lovingly, and with great care. One thing they must not do, though, is ignore the sins of their children, allowing them to go unchecked. This might seem loving, you know, to never come down on your kid about anything, to never spank, to never never rebuke. That might seem loving on the surface, but the Scriptures are clear. To do this, to take this approach, is in fact to hate your child. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. This seems to have been the case with Hammer. His son was self-centered and reckless. His father failed to confront his sin because he was the most honored of all his father's house. And if this was the case when Shechem was young, I think it is safe to assume that it was also the case when Shechem uh, was a child, if this was the case when he was a young man, also when he was a child. Not only do we damage our children by failing to discipline and instruct them, we also damage society. Look at the damage and destruction that came upon others as the result of self-centered Shechem. And brothers and sisters, my prayer for us is that we would be faithful to discipline and instruct our children for the glory of God and for their good, and also for the good of our neighbors. Fourthly, let us consider Jacob's role in all of this. Uh, The narrative of Genesis gives the impression that Jacob was negligent concerning his daughter and the terrible thing that was done to her. Remember that Dinah was the daughter of Leah. As I have said before, this theme will develop in the narrative of Genesis as it progresses. Jacob is characterized as showing favoritism to the children of Rebekah over the children of his other wives, Leah and the two servants. Did Jacob fail to look after Dinah? Was Jacob negligent by allowing her to go out to visit with the women of the land unattended? Did he fail to protect her from harm by giving her proper guidelines and restrictions, teaching her wisdom? It's really hard to know for sure, I'll I'll admit it, but I think all things considered, 
It does seem that Jacob is portrayed as one who cared too little about the well-being of his daughter. Perhaps he was negligent in this, therefore. Notice that when Hammer came to speak with Jacob about the incident, Jacob held his peace. This lack of outrage concerning what was done to Dinah seemed to further infuriate his sons, who then took matters into their own hands. After they did what they did, what did Jacob say to them? He rebuked his sons. And what was his concern? Why did he rebuke them? You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And so judging by this exchange and the broader context of Genesis, it seems that Jacob was more interested in preserving his place in the land than standing up against the awful thing that was done to his daughter and this frustrated Simeon and Levi. I do wonder if this episode here in Jacob's life is meant to be compared to the episodes in Abraham and Isaac's lives where they lied about their wife, saying that they were their sisters in order to preserve their own life. As you know, their wives, that is Sarah and Rachel, were taken into king's harems. And so they too, having been more concerned about their own preservation, were willing to put their wives in difficult circumstances. And here it seems that Jacob was negligent concerning his daughter, and that being confronted with the wrong that was done to her, he shrunk back, perhaps, out of fear of the people of the land, his numbers being few and theirs being very great. And brothers and sisters, I do have this application to make from this point. Let us not be found negligent in any of our duties. Instead, let us be found faithful. I have found that it is very easy to get distracted in this life and to lose sight of what matters most and of our basic and fundamental responsibilities. Have you experienced this yourself? Where all of a sudden you look at what you are doing and you are, you are engaged in all sorts of activities. You're busy. You're frantically running around. But when you look at what you are doing, you see, you know what? I'm pouring all of my time and energies into non-essential things. But the bad thing is I'm also neglecting to do that which the Lord has clearly called me to. Sometimes the things that distract us are good things in and of themselves. It can be work or education, friendship, ministry even. But if those good things keep us from fulfilling our basic responsibilities, then they have become a distraction to us. I can make many points of application here, but for now I will only say husbands are responsible to lead and to love their wives. Do not neglect that, brothers. Parents are responsible to raise their children in the Lord. On and on we could go. But I think it is beneficial for the Christian to look at all that they are engaged in and to ask, am I being faithful to do that which the Lord has clearly called me to do in this life? Or am I being distracted from that by non-essential things? The one who is mature in Christ will learn to juggle life's many demands without losing sight of that which is most important and without neglecting the essential work that the Lord has called them to. Husbands and wives, make it your aim to be good and godly husbands and wives. This is pleasing to the Lord. Don't allow other less important pursuits to distract you from fulfilling that calling. Parents, make it your aim to be good and godly parents. This is pleasing to the Lord. Do not look down upon that work, brothers and sisters, as if the Lord has something greater for you to do. He may, but certainly if you are a husband, 
That is the work you are to give yourself to. If you are a parent, that is the work you are to give yourself to. You're not to be distracted from it. And do not let those ordinary things seem small to you. They are very significant things. The Lord might use it to further His kingdom, in fact. This is pleasing to the Lord that we are faithful to what He has given us. Brothers and sisters, let us raise our children and teach them to live in this world, but to be not of it. Let us teach them wisdom and discernment. Let us provide them with boundaries and restrictions appropriate to their age. But let us also remember that our objective is to raise them so that we might send them away someday, so that they might fly on their own. That is our purpose, to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that we might send them away to live as servants of His in this world on their own. Jacob may have been negligent. It is possible that he failed to guide and direct his daughter so that harm befell her. But it is also possible that he did all that he could and should have done as a father. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, bad things happen even when we do everything in our power to prevent it. Do you realize that? I hope that you do. So let us not be negligent, but also let us not put ourselves in the place of God as if we have the ability to control what happens in this world. Fifthly and lastly, let us consider the actions of Simeon and Levi, the sons of Jacob. Um, They, like Shechem, showed themselves to be reckless men, driven by their passions and also lacking in self-control. Was it right for them to be angry about what was done to their sister Dinah? Of course it was. In fact, I think we could even say it would have been wrong for them to not be angry. That is not the problem. The problem is that their anger, that passion, was allowed to burn out of control. Their anger, instead of leading them to do right, drove them to do wrong. And brothers and sisters, it is very important for us to understand that anger is not necessarily sinful. It is right to be angry if we are angry about the right things. Often, though, we are angry about the wrong things. Have you ever found that to be the case? What do you get most angry about? I wonder if it is not this. Someone has dared to disrupt me (laughs) and my agenda. Someone has dared to take away some pleasure of mine. You know, all of a sudden you're offended and angry because someone has assaulted you. You're acting as if you're a little god or something, you know. It is right to be angry if we are angry about the right things, but often we are angry about the wrong things. And even if we are angry about the right things, we must be careful to not allow our anger to burn out of control, leading us to do wrong. Consider that God is angry concerning the wickedness of the world. But He does not sin. He perfectly hates that which is evil, and He perfectly loves that which is good. Never does His anger burn out of control. Never is it rage, you see. Does He pour out His wrath? Yes, perfectly so. But never is it out of control rage. His anger, His perfect anger, His perfect hatred of sin, which is rooted in His holiness, always leads Him to act with perfect justice. Listen to Ephesians 4.26. To the Christian, Paul says, Be angry... And do not sin. Notice that Paul commands the Christian to be angry, but never in a sinful way. Our anger 
even if it is righteous anger towards that which is evil, can burn out of control in one of two ways. Sometimes our anger is explosive. It may be right for you to be angry at your child for their disrespectful behavior, but never should that anger cause you to explode. That is, to lose control. But sometimes our anger burns out of control slowly. Here I am referring to anger that turns into bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness. Again, it may be that you are angry that, about some evil thing. But you are wrong to allow that anger to fester in such a way that it leads you to sin. To hold on to bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness within your heart. Both are sins having to do with anger. Angry about the right thing, perhaps. Perhaps you have truly been wronged. But you must handle yourself appropriately. You must be self-controlled, not driven by your passions. Be angry and do not sin, brothers and sisters. Be self-controlled. Do not allow your passions to drive you. Bring them into submission to the will of God. Simeon and Levi were right to be angry about the wicked thing that was done to their sister. In fact, I have said that perhaps Jacob was not angry enough. And Simeon and Levi would have been right to seek justice. But instead they allowed their anger to boil within them until it boiled over to do this horrible act of injustice. Shechem deserved to be punished for his sin. But instead Simeon and Levi poured out their wrath indiscriminately upon the whole multitude of that people. As we move to a conclusion, brothers and sisters, I cannot help but look ahead just a little bit in the narrative to draw your attention to the grace of God shown to Israel, because I do think this is the main purpose of the text, to magnify Israel's sin so as to also magnify the marvelous grace of our God. In Genesis 35:5, we read, "And as they, Jacob and his tribe, journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Do you remember Jacob's fear? We're very small. They're very great. They could annihilate us in a moment. But what happened? God protected them. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and he blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. All things considered, what do we see here? Despite the shortcomings, the sins, the failures, the terrible things done by Israel, God is going to be faithful to preserve them and to keep His promises to them. He was truly merciful, gracious, and kind to Jacob and his sons despite their sin. He would preserve them and bless them so that through them the Christ would come into the world in whom and through whom we have the forgiveness of sins. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this passage of Scripture. It is a difficult passage for us to consider. Such terrible things are described here. And yet, Lord, we know that there is a purpose for it. We are able to learn from the shortcomings of those who have gone before us. But we are also confronted with Your marvelous grace and mercy. Uh, Lord, how could we ever stand before You with 
any pride at all in our hearts, saying, You have chosen us because of our inherent, inherent goodness. It is not true, Lord. We know that You have chosen that which is weak and foolish in this world. We know that You have chosen sinful, fallen people. Lord, You have done this because You are kind. All that we have in Christ Jesus is because of You and Your kindness towards us. We are grateful, Lord. We are thankful, above all else, for Christ Jesus crucified and risen and the forgiveness of sins that we have in Him. You have poured out many other blessings besides this upon us, Lord. Help us to live grateful lives in this world. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all of God's people say.